Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization working to protect the ocean. I'm John Sherbin, the show's producer, and today's episode features Ken Niedemeyer, a true CNN hero. Ken was recognized for defending the planet and has received many awards, with perhaps none greater than seeing his coral reef nurseries flourish. For more information, check out futurefrogmen.org and look for us on social media at Future Frogmen. Let's get into it. Ken Niedemeyer, welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast. Good to be on. Yeah, it's, it's great to see you, Ken. And uh, I have to ask you, were you out on the reef today? I sure was. It was a beautiful yeah. day. No wind at all. Real clear. Great. Nice. What, uh, how, how long were you out there? Uh, we were out all day. We left at nine, got back at about four, three dives. Wow, that sounds like a great day. Ken, you've got a great story and uh, really looking forward to hearing more about your work with coral reefs and uh, learning some of the specifics about that. But before we go there, I'd like to learn about your, your personal journey and how it be- began as a boy and a young man. Uh, I grew up in Central Florida uh, on the, what they call the Space Coast. My dad worked at the Space Center and uh, you know was a real big part of all the early space flights and even putting a man on the moon. So I got to see that and uh, and yet I wasn't really interested in being an engineer or anything like that. I was interested in the ocean. We lived right on the coast and I just was fascinated with everything underwater. I grew up, that's in the 60s and we were watching the adventures of Jacques Cousteau and there was Sea Hunt and a few other underwater things that, that came out and I was just thinking this is cool. I, I really want to want to do this. <laughs> So I had freshwater aquariums when I was a kid, you know, in the early 60s. And then I started seeing the saltwater stuff. And I, you know, I thought, man, I got to have some of those fish. So that kind of led me to start snorkeling and diving and catching fish here and there or whatever. So I, I got certified in 1970 and started diving. I mean, I, that's all I did, it seemed like. <laughs> so what else? I don't know what you want to hear. I went to college in uh, South Florida. Uh, it was... Uh, Florida Atlantic University. It was real close to the coast. wasn't an accident that I picked it because uh, from my dorm room to the reef was about 10 minutes. <laughs> and I had a little canoe that I kept on top of my truck. And so we would drive to the beach. Back then you could park along the beach and we would launch the canoe, throw our dive gear in there and go out diving, <laughs> come back in for class, <laughs> go back out. <laughs> so a lot of time in the, in the water, even in college, it was fun. That sounds great. Hey, before we go too much further, though, uh, I was kind of curious, uh, if we go back to your high school years, I I was reading that you actually applied for, with the Army Corps of Engineers, a permit to build an artificial reef in the Indian River Lagoon. Uh, Can you tell us about that? (laughs) Yeah, you did some digging. Uh, So in high school, obviously, I was already diving and snorkeling by then, and the nearest body of water to us was at the time, they called it the Indian River. Now they call it the Indian River Lagoon. And it really is a lagoon. It's not a river. It's an estuary. So I dove in there all the time, and I started thinking, wow, what if I could build my own reef here, my own little private spot to get stone crab and whatever, you know? I just thought that would be cool. And so it was a high school project, and I got excited about doing it and looked up the permitting and, you know, applied to the Army Corps of Engineers for a permit for an artificial reef. and. I think I was the youngest person ever to apply for one at the time. <laughs> and we built a, a reef out in the, out the Indian River. This was before GPS and it was in the early days of Loran. And back then Loran could be, you know, a couple hundred yards off 
and I, I would go out in that river, and it's, it's pretty wide there. I would find that thing every day, just using landmarks and kind of, you know, I could find it. And it was, you know, the water was cloudy. You could never see the bottom, but I'd find my reef every time. I think that helped me. I, I learned to navigate by, you know, lining up two things on shore here and two things on shore here. When you move, they would move. And so, so I built that artificial reef in high school. It was kind of cool. I don't know where it is now, but I forgot my landmarks. That, that is cool. How did you build that reef? Uh, at the time, uh, old car tires were the item of choice for artificial reefs. So we, we got a bunch of old tires from the different tire places around town. We drilled holes in them, tied them together with uh, ropes and cables. So you'd put these tires and would coral grow on them? No, in the, the river there, it's a kind of a brackish water. It just wasn't a place where corals going to grow. Okay. Fish were attracted to it. There would be stone crabs in the tires. We saw some octopus out there. It's mostly fish and invertebrates, you know, barnacles and sponges and things like that grew on it, but no coral. I was into tropical fish, but not coral. We couldn't really have, actually back then, it was like pretty much, oh, you can't keep coral in an aquarium. You know, nobody was doing it. I guess some people were doing it, but pretty much nobody was. So, you know, you would, you would do fish and invertebrates and things like that. So. Plus, you weren't allowed to collect coral in Florida, so couldn't get it. Okay, and then uh, you had mentioned you went down to Florida Atlantic, and uh, that sounds like a great setup where you can get to get to the water in ten minutes. Yeah, uh, from your classroom and go go back to back to school. And, and during the summers, I worked at Sea Camp, so that was a like a summer camp on Big Pine Key, and I would spend well, it was, a, it was supposed to be three sessions all summer long, and I would work the first two, and then I would dive for lobster commercially and actually help pay for my college doing that lobster and then tropical fish during the rest of the year. So I was, uh, you know, part-time sea camper, part-time commercial fisherman back in the seventies. Back then you could actually make a living doing it <laughs> a lot harder now. Yeah. A lot more lobsters back then and probably larger lobsters, right? Yeah. And there's just so many people now that come down. There's still a lot of lobster, yeah. but so many people come in to get them. It's just crazy. I don't even do it anymore. It's too depressing. Yeah, I I, I did a uh, independent study on the, the South American spiny lobster uh, when I was with Cousteau down in uh, Isla Mujeres in Mexico. Oh yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting creature. Pretty yeah. interesting creature. Yeah, they have a really long larval planktonic larval stage that's up to nine months long. So you know, theoretically, a lot of the lobster that are living in the Florida Keys came from probably Yucatan or. Mexico or someplace like that. I mean, they could literally drift around the Gulf of Mexico and end up here. There's a local retention too, but there's there's a lot of them coming in. So we're vulnerable to overfishing in that area. Our fishery is because nine months is a long time to drift around in one spot and land back there. I mean, it can happen, but it doesn't tend to. Yeah, it sure is. Okay. So Sea uh, Camp, you, you got your degree in biology. And so that Sea Camp experience was... Uh, pretty nice for you as you were developing your, your science skills. Yeah, it was great. And I met a lot of really neat people. And uh, there's a whole, I mean, it's almost when you go to these big coral reef con conferences and things like that, a lot of times they have a breakout session of Sea Camp alumni. And it's a who's who of in the marine science field. You know, there's all kinds of people, you know, big names that went to either went to Sea Camp or worked there. So it was, a, it was a lot of fun. It was exhausting, but it was fun. And it looks like after graduation, 
I read that you spent about three years in mariculture. Right. So I worked at a company called uh, Ocean Farming Systems, and uh, they were raising pompano or food fish. And then we were also working on developing uh, aquaculture, mariculture uh, techniques for tropical fish, for marine ornamentals. So nobody was really doing it that back then. I mean, they were doing clownfish, but not much else. And so we were trying to develop that fishery, that industry. And, uh, you know, we, we got a good start and then, you know, infighting in, within the board members of the company. And it was just a long, <laughs> a long sad story, but we really never got going the way we wanted to. I kind of left there, the place was going down and I left and started my own business of uh, collecting tropical fish and shipping them all over the country. And I actually did that for 30 years after that and uh, put kids through college and learned a lot. In the process of being a, a marine life fisherman, I, I went to every imaginable habitat in the Florida Keys from the, you know, Penny Camp Park boundary to uh, almost to the Tortugas, you know, so lots and lots of, you know, 100 miles of reef, you know, inshore, offshore, backcountry, deep water, shallow water, whatever, and certainly learned a lot and saw a lot. Great time. And we discussed this in preparation for tonight's call. Uh, I asked you how you felt about capturing them, and I thought your answers were quite interesting. Well, it you know, it's always been a, I don't want to say a controversial fishery, but it's always been, we catch a lot of flack from, you know, a lot of times from environmental groups because they have, they don't, they think it's okay. I mean, people think it's okay to go have a fish dinner somewhere or shrimp or whatever that's been caught, caught from the ocean. And yet, if I catch a little tiny tropical fish that's sometimes only a few years old, or sometimes they only live a year, and I catch it at three months, and somebody enjoys it in their aquarium, and I, you know, people can enjoy these fish for a long time, and there's a lot of awareness. It, it doesn't add. You know, people think that's wrong. And yet they can have their seafood dinner. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is not right. Think about a, the marine life fishery, especially in Florida. I mean, we worked really hard to develop um, a, a really good management plan, with size limits, you know, daily catch limits, seasons. We eventually got it to be a, a limited entry fishery. So there's no new licenses being issued. If you want to get in the fishery, you have to buy an existing license. And we were really strict on it. And we, we started a you know, doing that, wow, 15 years ago, we saw what would happen if we left it wide open and, you know, with no restrictions. And then we would be like every other fishery. Eventually we would be overfished. And we were also afraid of, you know, of the tropical fish becoming food items. So we, early on, we made it so that these ornamental fish are called marine ornamentals. And you're not allowed to, to actually not allowed to kill them. I mean, if you brought one, if you wanted to catch one, you could catch it but you weren't allowed to kill it until you got to shore. So it's, it's complicated. You could actually could catch them and eat them, but you know you weren't allowed to spear them. I don't know. There was protections put on the fish because we didn't want them to become food. And then we saw, actually, we never thought about sea cucumbers, but sea cucumbers about five years ago, there's a, a big, huge demand in Asia for sea cucumbers. And these fishermen, these uh, buyers have gone throughout the Caribbean to different countries and wiped out their sea cucumbers. We saw it coming. This is actually about 10 years ago now. And so we went to the Fisheries Commission and said, hey, look, here's this is coming. Sooner or later, these guys are going to come to Florida and want to buy sea cucumbers. We think we should put a, a limit on how many you can get per day and sizes. And so we were way ahead of that. And so when they finally did come, the only people allowed to do it would have been the marine life fishermen. And 
they would have a cap on it. There's always a couple of fishermen that would do it, you know, but we made it hard to overfish sea cucumbers. So anyway, I guess we, you know, we've, we had a really good management plan. The, the state and federal learned to trust us. There was a handful of us in particular that would really tell them straight up if there was a problem, we were the first to go to them and they would listen to us. So we, we developed a really good plan and I, I still think it's a good plan. Anyway, that was a lot of fun. So I still, like, again, I, th I think a well-managed fishery, a, a marine life fishery is is a very viable thing. Now, you know, in a place where it's not managed, no, not good. If they allow cyanide fishing, not good. Um, blast fishing, and blast fishing is not really for tropical fish, but but if it's managed right, think about a tropical a marine life fishery, is everything has to be landed live. So you, you, you have a certain limit on how many fish you can handle in a day and then you've got to sell them live. So you got to keep them alive. And it's not like you can just have a really good day and fill your cooler with snappers or something like that. It's, it's a good fishery. I, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot though. I learned about where all these different fish live, when they bred, when they settled out of the plankton, what their different habitat needs are, what their preferences were. It wasn't just fish either. It was all the invertebrates and all kinds of stuff. So I, I learned a lot. <laughs> I, I kind of missed that part of it. But I don't miss going out and catching fish. I, I still have a license and occasionally I've gone out to help my son-in-law. He has my old business. It's just thrills not there anymore. Well, I, I think you're uh, you're clearly environmentally minded and that's how you behaved with, with your, your fishing in a in a managed, sustainable fashion. And you took that uh, that mindset to the coral world. But just before we jump over to get into the the thick of it with coral. Um, I did have two questions for you. One of the plans I think you were involved with, the federal plan, said a management plan for octocorals. What are octocorals? So the octocorals are the, the gorgonians, the soft corals, and they, their range can go from, you know, hundreds of feet to, you know, inches of water. And they're, they're a really popular item in the aquarium trade, and they're kind of like weeds. I mean, there's I mean, there was an estimate at one point just in state waters of, you know, billions and billions of colonies. And yet we were, you know, they were trying to just say, oh, you know, you can't, this is not a sustainable fishery. You're saying, look, these things, you know, they grow fast. There's tons of them, you know. So we had to, we worked with the South Atlantic Council to develop a management plan for that fishery. So that it was properly managed. You know, they, they're the ones that manage corals. So we had to work with them. And I, I was I still am on the coral advisory panel for the South Atlantic Council. So whenever they have anything related to coral, I would uh, I get involved in it, go to meetings and things like that. So that was, uh, so the, the state of Florida then adopted the same management uh, plan that the South Atlantic Council did. So we're managed you know, under the same rules. And then there is another term, uh, live rock, uh, state and federal uh, management of live rock aquaculture plans. What, what does uh, live rock mean? Well, live rock is basically an old dead coral. We started harvesting it in the, wow, I think I started getting live rock in 1980. And we would go to the rubble zones at the reef where, you know, storms piled these, you know, broke the corals up, usually elkhorn coral, and would break it all up, pile it up on the reef. It would wash back and forth and make these great big piles. I mean, huge piles the size of, you know, football stadiums. <laughs> and we would just go there and pick off a few rocks, bring them back in. And people used them in their aquariums, and they became a real essential part of, a, of a, what they call a reef tank. You know, so instead of a, 
a tank with just fish with chemicals in the water to keep the bacteria and stuff you know down these would become living systems with live coral and all kinds of living critters full of you know just full of life but the the live rock provided a surface for aerobic bacteria but also anaerobic bacteria inside the, the live rock and there was like this whole nutrient cycling process that took place because of the live rock so they became all of a sudden the backbone of reef tanks and so the demand shot up and some people probably harvested from the wrong area and you know long story but the state of florida and the federal government both said you know this is a non-renewable resource we can't let you continue to harvest live rock but we'll develop an aquaculture plan and there was all kinds of controversy about that but it became apparent to me pretty early on that they were going to go in that direction. They were going to ban the harvest of wild live rock. And so I was actually the first person to ever get a live rock aquaculture permit in the Keys on the Atlantic coast, just because I tried, you know, <laughs> everybody with these meetings and you're going to put us out of business. Wah, wah, wah. You know, we, you know, we can't do this and nobody's ever done it. And I just like, I said, well, I'm going to try. I'm going to put in an application and I did all the right things and I got it. And, I was in business and I was the only person doing it here in the Keys in South Florida for a couple of years. We would buy quarried limestone from South Florida and in the quarries they dig, you know, they'll dig down 50 feet and there's different layers in the quarry. So we would act, actually go to these quarries and have to pick just by sight the right limestone because at different depths you get different limestones. And so we were looking for this lytic limestone that lived right at the surface, you know, the top 10 or 15 feet of limestone was what we wanted. And so we would go to the quarries and pick that rock out, put it in a trailer, bring it back down, wash it, take it out there, stack it up, <laughs> wait two years, bring it back in. We still do that, you know. <laughs> We've gotten better at it and now we have a really great product. But during the development of this management plan, we, we pointed out, like, you know, you're making us do this and we're, you know, we're, we're reluctantly doing it. You know, we, we don't agree with it, blah, blah, blah. But if we're going to do it and we put all this go to all this work to put this live rock out there there's going to be coral larvae settling on our live rock and now all of a sudden our investment is useless to us because it has coral on it and we can't harvest it because of the coral so we said could you give us an exemption so that if our live rock gets coral on it we can sell the rock and the coral at the same time and you know so we had this exemption for coral we were the only people that could actually have live coral as long as it was on our live rock. And uh, that's kind of what set the stage for this whole coral farm because we had one year where staghorn coral settled on our rock. Just one year, never settled again. You know, just a couple, three different colonies, that was it. <laughs> but, you know, I recognized what they were right away and I said, oh, let's put these aside. You know, these are, you know, these could be valuable. So we, uh, we nurtured them along. And then what happened, I mean, they were growing, they, they really quickly grew too big to even sell. I mean, it's like all of a sudden you had this big bushy thing on top of this rock. It's like, how am I going to sell this somewhere? And then about that time we had, I think we had like Hurricane George come through in 1998 and pretty much, you know, tossed the rocks all over the place. And I would find bits and pieces of coral here and there. And so it was like, I'd found the main rock and then I'd find a little bit of coral and I'd stick it in a hole here or stick it in there. And and what do you know, some of them would grow. And so I started paying attention to what the aquarium community was doing. And then I got this whole idea. It evolved over a couple of year period that starting a coral farm using those original corals that settled on the live rock. 
kind of how it started. It is how it started. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. You also, uh, in the early 90s, you were realizing there was a serious problem with the coral reefs that needed to be addressed. Yeah, so that probably had a, that played a big role in uh, me even wanting to get into coral farming. Actually, I wanted to be a coral farmer to sell the coral to make money initially. I never actually sold any of it and worked into a, a restoration nursery. But what had happened is, especially in 1998 was a, a, a turning point for a lot of reasons. One is, you know, we had a, this hurricane that did a lot of damage. But prior to the hurricane, we had had, it was the first global bleaching event. And we, the corals bleached really bad. And that's where they, they get too hot and they expel their symbiotic algae. And so instead of being brown or green or whatever color they are, they turn bone white. And when they turn white, they're on a diet. You know, most of their food comes from the algae that lives in them. And so once they expel that algae, they're, they're hungry. And they can only stay like that for a certain period of time. It depends on the, the species of coral and maybe the temperature of the water. But that year in 1998, the corals bleached in June. And by August, most of them were, well, not most of them, but a lot of them were dead. And uh, it just changed the whole reef. I mean, it, it never came back after that. We'd had small bleaching events before then, but in 1998, and usually a small bleaching event would be short. It would, they might bleach at the end of August or beginning of September, and they would get their color back in October. So they would go a month to six weeks bleached. But in 1998, they went for three or four months and then, you know, we had a hurricane in the middle of that and it just devastated the reefs and they did not bounce back. And it, it just got my attention. And uh, another thing that happened in the eighties is the, the long spine sea urchins had died off. And at the time I was just as happy as can be because those things, you know, you're catching these tropical fish and there's, you know, a hundred sea urchins around a, a coral head or something and you're gonna get stabbed. <laughs> So when they died, all of a sudden, there were no sea urchins to stab you, and it was great. But within a year, I realized, oh, they did something, didn't they? <laughs> they ate all the algae that was, would smother the coral. So, so the, between the bleaching event in 1998 and the loss of the sea urchins, uh, it was on a, the coral reefs were and still are on a pretty sharp decline. And uh, I just said, I can't keep collecting tropical fish without trying to do something about this coral and the sea urchin problem. So I've attacked both of those and tried different things. And what uh, caused the mortality of the sea urchins? Well, do you know? this was 1983. So it, was, uh, it started in the Panama, in Panama, there's suspicion that it came through in, uh, ballast, in ballast water on a boat coming from the Pacific. Yeah, because the disease, it's a bacterial disease. They never conclusively identified it. They have suspicions. I don't know the exact, you know, genus and species of it, but they could track it. You know, the death progressed from Panama and was moved by currents throughout the Gulf of Mexico into Florida. You know, you could just pretty much, you know, whichever way the currents were going is, and you could almost time, you knew where it was going next. And sure enough, it did. And it would come through an area whatever it was, this bacterial load in the water infect, you know, 99% of the diadema, they would all die within three or four days. And then it would, you know, move on because it didn't have a host anymore. And it was devastating. I, it was amazing what happened. It happened so quick. Have they rebounded or are they still gone? In certain areas, in some areas of the Caribbean they have. What I found out is that everything likes to eat 
sea urchins. They're kind of like chocolate-covered peanuts, and every fish likes to eat them at all stages. So, I mean, even though a big one seems like it'd be impossible to eat, there's all kinds of fish that'll eat them. So in the Florida Keys, we have a lot of fish still. So as these urchins try to recover, the fish just eat them up as fast as they come. And we've done a lot of work, you know, kind of quantifying how fast they get eaten and they get eaten really fast. And yet you go to a place like Jamaica or a lot of the Caribbean where there's been cereal overfishing for decades and, you know, Jamaica in particular, they've eaten every fish that's big enough to, to eat, you know, a little tiny butterfly fish, they still eat them. So the predation on the urchins isn't as heavy there. So the urchins have come back in some of those areas and in the places where they've come back, the reefs look great. You know, they're, they're, they're recovering too. It's spotty, but yeah, they've come back. But Florida, I mean, there's urchins out there, but it's been so, so slow. It's amazing how slow it's been. So Ken, for people that might not know the importance of coral reefs, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I mean, they provide habitat for all kinds of fish. I think they say 25% of the fish in the world are, you know, there's statistics and I don't, I'm not good at quoting them, but yeah, they provide shoreline protection, protection. They provide habitat for fish. They provide recreational opportunities. I mean, it's just, they're like the rainforest of the sea. There's so many things. You can have a structure, like right, a lot of places we have reefs, but they're not coral reefs anymore. They're dead reefs. They're, they're reefs with some living coral on, but they're not a live coral reef. And so they don't attract nearly the amount of fish and invertebrate life that a live coral would. So they, you know, they're a real important part of the, the whole ecosystem. It's, it, it, it's like going to, I don't want to bash on Disney World, but you go there and they're all plastic trees, you know, or you go to one of these places and they're plastic trees and, and they have to put plastic critters in there too, because you know, fish and birds and animals really like plastic trees. They like live trees. And same with fish. They like live coral. They're drawn to the smell of a coral reef. They're drawn to the sound of all the things living in a coral reef. And when the coral dies, the reef, you know, dies with it and the, the fish don't come back. A lot of places in the, in the tropics around the world, I mean, they live on the fish that live on the reef. And so when the reefs die, the fish aren't drawn to the reefs and so their productivity goes way, way down. And so these people are no longer able to sustain themselves by catching fish to eat. And I think they're the coolest place to go in the world, <laughs> but. I would agree with that, yeah. So uh, you kind of made a uh, passionate uh, career change and started this whole effort to uh, build coral nurseries and, and even started a nonprofit organization. Right, so I was uh, early on so my daughter and I started this coral farm as a 4-H project. And so I have a second daughter, she was uh, doing a lot of diving with me. And so we got this idea of, of growing corals and selling them to the aquarium trade and to make money. And, you know, we, I joke about it a lot, but, you know, they were in a 4-H club and you go to the rest of the United States and you think of 4-H and you, you know, they raise chickens and pigs and cows and take them to the county fair. And, you know, that's like a big it's agriculture and all that kind of stuff. Down here in the Florida Keys, you can't do that. I said, well, what if we could raise coral? You know, it's not, be the first person people to ever do that. And we did it out in the ocean. So, it, I mean, we learned a lot doing that. It was a lot of fun. It was a great project. And I told my daughter, Kelly, I said, you know, we could, we could make a lot of money because nobody has this coral anywhere. 
this is, we would be the only people that have it and we could make a ton of money and put you through college and buy that new car and blah, blah, blah. Well, we never sold the first coral. <laughs> then we, you know, we started growing these corals and we developed this whole thing and started engaging people. And we started realizing what if we could put these on the reef and they would grow back, you know, and I just got it, you know, really turned on by that idea. And so we started doing that. And I told Kelly, I said, let we're just going to give all the corals away. We're not going to sell them. We're going to do this with them. And she looked at me like I was crazy, <laughs> but uh, that's what we did. And we got to the point where by 2007, so we've been doing it for five or six years and the, you know, we had grown from three corals to three or 4,000 corals. And, you know, it was a substantial thing and it was all me and her doing it and the rest of my family helping. It was a lot of work to try to get grants and sponsorships and funds to do anymore, you know, you either had to be part of a, you know, university or a nonprofit or, you know, government agency. And I thought, well, I'm going to go the nonprofit route. So we formed uh, the Coral Restoration Foundation in 2007 and started learning. I learned a lot about nonprofits and the whole thing over the next 10 years. But, you know, we formed it in 2007, but I didn't stop working as a tropical fish collector until beginning of 2010. So we just, you know, we had it, but we didn't have any money. And whatever money we did get, we did get some grants. I think our first grant was from Disney. You know, I would just use it to pay gas and air and supplies and things like that. But I never took a salary because it wasn't about the money. It was about advancing the cause. And so if I could buy more gas and buy air for people and get people out there helping me instead of taking a salary, then I could get more done. But in 2010, we ended up quitting my tropical fish job and started doing this full time, hired a couple other people. And, you know, it was, it was a scary thing to, to go from a, a job where I had control of what I was going to make to a job where I didn't. <laughs> in the nonprofit world, you're at the mercy of donors and grants and things like that. And it was a real change. Yeah. And you went doing that full time. Yeah. So from 2000, began, right at the, you know, January, 2010 is when I started full time on that. Right. I left uh, Coral Restoration Foundation at the end of 2007. So I did it for a living for seven years for them. And then I started my own consulting company, but we grew from a tiny little organization that had no, no, no paid employees to, I don't know what they have now. They probably have 20 paid employees and, dozen interns you know it's it's a it's a big organization and you know for me it was kind of time to to move on I mean I felt like okay this is going great there's other things I want to do now and I need the freedom to go out and uh, fail if I fail but just the freedom to go out and try some new things without worrying about grants and all that kind of stuff so how long was it before you uh, established uh, your next nonprofit, Reef Renewal? I, I left Coral Restoration Foundation in December of 2007. So in January of 2008, I formed Reef Renewal LLC, which is a limited liability corporation. So it was just going to be my consulting company. And then I had people approach me about forming an international Reef Renewal brand. So we've actually formed that later that year, and that became a 501c3, a U.S.-based nonprofit, and also a European-slash-Dutch nonprofit. We're kind of based in uh, Bonaire, Dutch Antilles. And then uh, my friend Mike down in uh, Big Pine Key, I actually approached him. I said, Mike, did you still want a nursery? Because he, he's in the lower keys, I'm in the upper keys. Mike had bugged me for years 
about he wants a coral nursery down there because he, you know, he lives down there and it, you know, Luke Key is his favorite spot. And so I called him, I said, Mike, are you still interested in getting a coral nursery down there? He said, I sure am. So that kind of led to him forming a Reef Renewal USA brand that is a nonprofit, a 501c3. So I'm actually not on the board of that. I'm the, you know, chief cook and bottle washer, technical advisor, permit guru guy. <laughs> but I, you know, I kind of work for them, but I still, I'm, I'm you know, I've, I helped found both of them. I don't know, that's kind of confusing. So there's a Reef Renewal International and a Reef Renewal USA, and there's a few other international affiliates and uh, network members. So we formed this international network so that we could go throughout the Caribbean and help people set up restoration programs, but also provide support and help them turn their businesses into a viable business that would actually support itself through grants, through donations, through partnerships with people. And so we formed that to, you know, the Referral International to do that. And we're, we're still working on this. Uh, this COVID thing has set us back on what we can do right now because we had quite a few projects underway and uh, ready to start. And because we can't travel, we're kind of stuck, but uh, it'll happen. Yeah, so I guess the good news is for those corals that have been planted, if that's not terribly inaccurate word, the unless they're destroyed by a hurricane or something, they're continuing to grow, even though your your operations might be slowed down a little bit due to yeah. COVID. So I mean, that's the good news is that you know any corals we did put on the reef, you know, by and large, they're doing well, and the corals in the nursery are doing well, and and we have. Everywhere we go, we have, you know, a local team that, you know, it's their nursery. It's their program. We're just trying to help them. So they're taking care of it. You know, they're, they're still out planting coral. They're still doing all the work. But a lot of them are based on dive tourism that helps pay the bills and provide some of the manpower. So they're, you know, their businesses are hurting because there's no tourism. There's no dive travel right now. So in that respect, you know, they're kind of hurting. But they basically have nothing else to do, so they're out playing in their nurseries. <laughs> so it, it all works. It's like me. I mean, I, I can't go. There's a lot of things I can't do right now because of this, you know, quarantines and all these kind of things. But I can go diving, and so we've been doing a lot of that. It's. It, I'm guessing it's a little bit when you're in the nursery working. It's a little bit of a different type of diving. You have to be very careful and. Yeah, because you don't want to get tangled up in the trees. You don't want to kick. A bunch of corals you know you have to learn buoyancy uh you know i found in the early days everything was on the ground we, had, we grew everything on things that were on the on the sand and so you had to learn to lay on the bottom or sit on the bottom and work and i was surprised how many people couldn't do that or couldn't do it very well <laughs> and then for a while then we started growing on these trees and initially we would pull the tree down we'd grow the tree you know the tree would be floating 10 15 feet off the bottom a lot of times I found it just easier to pull it down and then just stand there working, you know, you turn the tree around to do the next step, you just keep turning it and you work it up and down. It was seemed like so easy and yet we'd bring recreational divers there and then try to get them to stand up and <laughs> they couldn't do it. <laughs> it wasn't something they'd ever learned how to do. So, uh, you know, it was a, a learning experience on training people to, to work in a nursery. Now, our nursery is pretty much set up to work midwater, you learn how to be neutrally buoyant and the nursery is because we could start all over you know when we started reef renewal we spread the nursery out quite a bit so while you're working on one tree you're not going to kick a tree near you because it's 15 feet away 
where some of the other nurseries are too close. You know, they're 10 feet away. And so you can be kicking one tree while you're working on one. And we've learned a lot. It's a, it's a fun place to dive, though. There's tons of fish and a lot of really neat stuff going on and lots of coral. The coral, I mean, I, I, think I mentioned earlier, become just magnets for fish. And there's so many fish swimming around you all the time. And um, it, it's just a really neat place. And a lot of coral. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the Coral Restoration Foundation, so the original nursery is about two or 300 yards from our new nursery. And that nursery, their nursery has been there for 10 years, 15 years. And it's just got tons and tons of fish. I mean, thousands of snappers and all kinds of really cool fish, sharks, you know, stingrays, a lot of neat stuff. Can you tell us how the operation works? What do you do when you go down and maintain and sometimes uh, fragment the coral? Well, if I could back up just for a minute and explain that to do to, to even set up a nursery, obviously we have to have permits. So we have to get a permit from the, the National Marine Sanctuary. We have to get a permit from the Army Corps of Engineers. We have to get a permit from the state of Florida. We have to get a permit from the National Marine Fisheries Service, Endangered Species Act. You know, <laughs> it takes a while. And then to stock the nursery, we get permits to go collect corals from select populations. And so in a case of elkhorn coral, they live out on the outer reef. And so I would get a permit and say, I want to collect corals, you know, from these different genetic strains from this reef, this reef, this reef. And we'll go there and we just take like usually end cutting, like maybe the size of your hand, a few of those from a coral and bring them back to the nursery, cut them into small pieces. And then we suspend them from the branches of the tree which is what it looks like. They look like Christmas ornaments. So they're suspended with by monofilament lines. So the work of maintaining a nursery once it's been stocked is involves cleaning the monofilament lines, cleaning the branches and cleaning the trunks of the trees. And we use brushes and chisels and scrapers to do that. It doesn't have to be absolutely spick and span clean. It looks nicer when it is. The most important thing is just to keep the monofilament clean. So it depends on where the nursery is, how often that has to go. But we get volunteers and uh, pretty much volunteers help out with the cleaning. And it's actually very therapeutic. It's hard to explain, but I have a lot of people that just want to come down and clean the trees. That's all they want to do. And they'll sit there all day long, <laughs> scrubbing algae and fire coral or whatever off the tree branches, the monofilament. As the corals then get bigger, we cut them up into pieces. Some of the pieces will go back on the original tree and then some get planted on the reef. So we do a one-time, it's like for one genetic strain of coral, we call it a genotype. We would do just one collection and then we would we call it fragging. We keep cutting that thing up for years and years and years. The, the original corals that we settled on the live rock in 1996, we're still harvesting and growing that those corals today. And all the different genetic strains of coral that we've collected over the years, we still have all of the originals in the nursery. And so it's, you know, it's a perpetual thing. It's not like we have to go keep going out and collecting more coral to put it, you know, cut it up and then take it out. It's not what we do. We collect it, cut it up, grow it, cut it up, grow it, and then start planting it. It's very rewarding, very satisfying. And there's probably more coral, like elkhorn and staghorn coral, there's probably more in our nurseries than live on the reef now. And a lot of the I would say half of the different genetic strains of the staghorn coral in our nursery don't live in the wild anymore. They were they died for one reason or another. So it's it's genetic preservation. A lot of what we're doing, and with our with my new permit, when I uh, decided to to do reef renewal, I said, you know, what we need to start focusing on 
are these different genetic strains that have demonstrated either resistance to disease or resistance to extreme heat. So just about all the corals in my nursery now, and I have probably five or 600 different genotypes of 18 different species, they're all either disease resistant or heat resistant. So when we start putting those corals back on the reef, you know, we suspect that a lot of them are gonna maintain those characteristics and, and still be heat resistant and disease resistant. So maybe we're gonna build a whole new generation of reefs built based on the winners, you know. And then the next step for that would be to start interbreeding these different heat resistant and disease resistant corals. So a lot of the corals in the nursery will become reproductive after two or three years, and we can start doing selective breeding with them. That's kind of on the horizon. It's actually happening. A lot of really neat stuff that's happened because of these nurseries. We were the first organization to ever uh, spawn and rear the staghorn coral, and we kind of blazed a, a trail on that, working with other partners. You know, we were we provided the coral and they provided the know-how to do a lot of that work. Couldn't have been done without the nurseries and without all the corals that we had. And you, you have a good number of species, correct? Yeah, so it, it, at Coral Restoration Foundation, it started with just one and then we had two. And when I left there, we had maybe five, but now I have 18 different species in my nursery. And within each species, there's anywhere from 25 to 75 different genetic strains. So if you multiply 18 by 20, you get a lot of <laughs> a lot of different genotypes that all have to be tracked. So every coral is tracked. You know, it might be on a tree that has a label on it that identifies that tree, or it might be on a credit card growing on a card or a you know some sort of a disc or something. But everything is labeled, so we we know exactly what we have. And then when we do restoration, we keep track of which ones do good where. I mean, it's, you know, maybe the right corals for the right reef is, is kind of the, the goal. And a coral that might do well on one reef might not do well on another reef. You know, there's different, as you go up and down the keys, conditions change dramatically. And so, you know, we try a lot of different corals for like, say, elkhorn coral. We might plant 50 different genotypes on a, on a reef. And maybe 30 of them will do really good and 20 of them won't. The next reef down or maybe down the lower keys 50 miles away it might be completely the other way around you know that 20 might do good and the, the 30 that we're doing good up in the upper keys aren't doing so well so you got to have a lot of diversity and you got to try a lot and plus when we do restoration you want to have as much genetic diversity and species diversity as possible and that's what we've been shooting for so the uh you have one nursery is that right I have, we have three nurseries now. Okay. So I have uh, two of them are in our name, Reef Renewal, and one of them is we're, we're not really leasing it, but we're using one that is uh, owned by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission. So okay. I helped them find a nursery site. They were only going to use a tiny little part of it for one species of coral. And I said, hey, look, you know, you're in a strategic location. Could we utilize the rest of your nursery working with you? and you know really build it out so we're just now starting to build that one out all the way and they're strategically located one's in the upper keys one's in the middle keys one's in the lower keys and if you're not familiar with the keys it's a string of islands it's about well it's over 100 miles long 100 miles of highway so we have one at about the mile marker 90 one at about 50 and one at 20 25 you know so we're kind of from each of those nurseries we can 
you know, you have a 10 or 15 mile range where you can easily work. And so they're all kind of strategically located. Is there any issue with tourists, uh, you know, wanting, wanting to dive or snorkel in the area? Not really. I mean, the, the nurseries are out in the middle of nowhere. There, there's not really anything marking them. We, I mean, we take recreational divers there all the time. I mean, the dive boat for Keys, before this uh, pandemic, at the Coral Restoration Nursery, there would be a dive boat there. Sometimes one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Weekends would be two in the morning, two in the afternoon, you know, all year long. Uh, not so much now, there's some. Uh, so a lot of people get a chance to dive it and their dive shops have been really good about not going there unless they're working with Coral Restoration on a, on a trip. But as far as a recreational dive boat or, you know, just ma and pa stumbling across it and diving, they don't tend to. Um, if they do, we don't really see them and they don't seem to bother anything. Yeah, I was just curious. Uh, what about just in general with coral uh, around the world? What would be your advice to divers and, and even snorkelers in order to protect and care for the coral? Well, obviously when you're diving, you don't want to be trampling it, kicking it in and smashing it. You know, good diabetic, good, good buoyancy. You know, touching a coral is not going to kill it. But if it gets touched and kicked and banged day in, day out, all the time, it's going to die. And so in heavily dove areas, you know, people need to watch their buoyancy and stay off the bottom and don't mess with the bottom. But as far as, you know, the future of corals, I mean, we all as a society, as a human race, you know, we, we need to stop what we're doing, <laughs> you know, slow down some because we're rapidly killing off the reefs with pollution, you know, climate change, you know, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, climate change is the big one, but, you know, our pollution and overfishing have done so much damage already, you know, everybody, the popular press, all they all blame it on climate change, but a lot of this stuff happened long before the effects of climate change could have even been detected. And it's all just stupid, wasteful pollution. It's a, abuse, just all kinds of things like that. But I think we need to, you know, I mean, this is a whole other subject. And I'm not going to get on a, on my little bully pulpit and beat people on the heads. But, you know, it, it's going to take everybody doing something about it. And I think governments need to take the lead. But people, even individuals, can start making choices. And they might say, well, what does my little choice make a difference? It, it does, it's the right thing to do, you know. There's so much could be said about that. I only want to get started on it, but I think it's people have to be aware that it, the coral reefs are a living resource. They're in a lot of danger, and it's things that we've been doing as a as a society, as a human race, that is killing it. And really, people just have no idea what we're going to lose. And I think you know the future of coral reefs is in a lot of trouble, and it just gets really you know depressing to think about the trajectory it's on, and it doesn't seem like people care. You know? But you are still hopeful. Yeah, and I think you have to have a, a hopeful message. I mean, I'm not stupidly hopeful. I, I'm very aware of the problems, but I do think there's things we can do. I, a lot of times I, I try to say, yeah, we're, we're selling hope. And we're buying time. If people have hope, then they'll support the work, and we can buy some time. Can we buy enough time? I don't know. I mean, if, if we never, as a society, get our addiction to oil and... Uh, you know, plastics and stuff, if we never get that under control, then they're toast, you know. Everything we're doing is is a waste of time. But if we can buy 20, 30, 40 more years and we can address those issues, then we have some coral reefs left and we might have the basis for restoring reefs in the future. So I think there's hope, there's things we need to do. 
I'm not willing to just sit back and, you know, wipe my hands and say it's not my problem anymore. The problem with the climate change issue is it's so big that people feel like they can't do anything about it as an individual. And I don't agree with that. I, I started this thing 15 years ago or more and, you know, challenged people. I had a lot of people at the time telling me, I mean, scientists, you know, politicians and you know, people, oh, yeah, that's really nice, but you can never do that. You know, you know, when I started, there was no, you know, nobody was doing this. I was the first one in the United States doing it. And it was lonely. And I was trying to tell everybody, you know, I, I had this vision of what we could do. And it was really hard in the beginning. And now all of a sudden everybody's, you know, this is, everybody's doing it. And, and we're getting to where, you know, we are making a difference. There's reefs in the Florida Keys. There's reefs all over the Caribbean now that have been, you know, brought back to life or they're being brought back to life by the efforts of people that have worked with me, copied me, or just saw that this was working and they wanted to do it too. A lot of them have never met me. They don't know who I am, but all of a sudden this idea took root and grew. Now I wasn't, you know, I don't, don't get me wrong. I wasn't the only person in the world doing it, but in my little world in the Florida Keys back before the internet, I didn't know of anybody else doing it. And I was just like, let's just do this, you know? <laughs> and I said, if the aquarium people can grow corals in an aquarium, surely we can do it in the ocean. And so we, we set out to do it and we set out to do it on a really big scale. And, and we, we did that. And I think we need to do it on a much bigger scale now. I mean, I, I look at what we've done, it's great. And what other people are doing is great, but we need to scale it up by orders of magnitude, faster, better, cheaper, and we can. And that's the exciting part about it. And there's exciting that there's a lot of interest now. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of great stuff going on. The danger is that people will look at it and, you know, the press will say, oh, you know, scientists discovered this, you know, and they're, you know, the people, sometimes people, if you read the popular press, they think, oh, we've got this solved, you know, I can continue life as, as normal because, you know, these guys figured out how to restore coral reefs. And it's like, boy, that's, that's not the truth. You know, we, we've figured some things out, but we're just wasting our time if we don't address these other issues. So it's important that people not believe everything they read on the, on the internet or, or watch on television. Well, I think uh, to me, this COVID experience uh, has reminded me how impatient the human species is. And, uh, you know, to your point, uh, it's going to take diligence and an extended period of time to do what uh, what needs to be done, as you say, on a larger scale. But uh, it's it's I'm sure you had, uh, like you said, some lonely, painful times over the over the years, but it's really admirable. And, and you've been You've received a lot of uh, media attention and a, a number of great awards. I mentioned earlier the CNN Hero, CNN Hero 2012 for, quote, defending the planet. I have to ask you, what was that honor like? Oh, that was awesome. I, you know, they, uh, this gal from CNN called me on the phone, and it wasn't totally unusual to get a call from a, a network or somebody wanting an interview or a sound bite or whatever, because by then, you know, we'd we'd actually, you know, I'd already gotten quite a few awards for different things. And I was kind of like the go-to guy for coral restoration. You know, I started it. And uh, so this gal called me up and she started asking a lot of questions. And I said, okay, you know, CNN's going to do a story. Cool. You know, that's a big fish. And uh, she asked a ton of questions, really deep questions. And then she said, well, I'm going to call you in another couple of days. I just need to get some answers to these questions. And so another couple of days she called again and she just started asking all kinds of questions. I mean, like really deep, deep questions. 
And then she would call back another couple of days and finally she said, well, I guess I got to tell you now that, you know, we're working on a, you know, you've been nominated as a CNN hero. We've been doing a background check on you. They had called all kinds of people that I knew. I mean, I don't know where they got these people's names, but they had called dozens of people to make sure that I didn't have some sort of weird skeletons in my closet. <laughs> I mean, they went way back and all kinds. So she asked me, she said, you know, can you think of anybody that would not like you or something like that? Or, you know, who could I talk to that give a bad report about you? <laughs> what kind of a question is that, you know? But I gave her the, I gave her a couple of days. I said, well, this guy probably didn't like me because, you know, mostly related to the marine fishery business. Uh, and I said, you know, you can talk to him. He's, you know, this is what he'll probably say and this is why he'll say it. And I gave him a few names, but, but I got it. She said, you know, she said, you know, we get 10,000 nominations a year and out of that, we only end up with about 15 people that pass, that have a project worth honoring and that pass all the background stuff. So I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. So yeah, it was really neat. I was uh, pretty excited about it. And, you know, not very many people get that honor. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, that's really, really very good. Uh, something to be very extremely proud of for sure. So as we get near the end of our conversation, Ken, um, how can people learn more about what you're doing and get involved of, of all ages, but, uh, you know, uh, particularly young people, but people of all ages, how, how could they follow you and get involved? I'm not real visible on the social media right now. Uh, when I left the Coral Restoration Foundation and started Reef Renewal, my focus was not on tooting my own horn or anything like that. It was on, you know, chasing this new dream of mine. But the, the Reef Renewal International, if you go to reefrenewal.org, that's our international brand. That's the website for there. And there's there's a lot of information there. I mean, the Coral Restoration Foundation, you know, a lot of what they're doing is what I started. So, you know, I don't really want to necessarily promote them, but they, they have a very aggressive media campaign. And they if somebody wanted to become an intern, they have 10 dozen interns, I don't know, they have a lot of interns every three months. And so there's a lot of opportunity to get involved with them. You know, we have uh, Reef Renewal on Instagram and Ken Niedemeyer on Facebook, but you probably won't find me doing much posting. That's <laughs> just not, I guess I'm an old foger that doesn't, uh, I, I, I know the value of doing that, but I don't take the time to do it because at the, at the end of the day, I'm tired. I've got data to enter, images to download. And I don't feel like getting on Facebook and chatting with everybody. And, sure. Uh, but the, the reefrenewal.org, uh, reefrenewalusa.org will eventually have a website. But there's going to be opportunities to come down and dive with us, work with us, intern with us. There's, there's other organizations in the Florida Keys. There's Moat Marine Lab in the Lower Keys. They have a, an intern program. Core restoration and moat are probably the biggest two that you know you could get involved with, but you know they're doing they're doing a good thing. I, you know we're all trying to to do a good thing. If you, if you go to the reefrenewal.org website, it, it talks a little bit more about what we're doing internationally, and you can also go to reefrenewal Bonaire, and they have a real active program in Bonaire. So if you ever have you ever been to Bonaire, Diamond? 
Yes. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. It's a great place to dive. I mean, I, I love going down there, and they have a great program. They've done a ton of work. Uh, it's a great experience. And so, if somebody wanted to go on a really good experience, you know, reef renewal, coral restoration, whatever you want to call it, that's a great place to go because you're pretty much guaranteed of getting in some good dives and not getting blown out. The problem with up here is, you know, you can have uh, all the great intentions, and you can have 15 people show up from all over the country, and then the wind will be blowing so hard that you can't go out. So, it doesn't happen like that in Bonaire very often. Lots of really good stuff going on, and there's other people in the rest of the Caribbean, too. Sure, and if we can be of any assistance, people can reach out to us, Future Frogmen, futurefrogmen.org. We're developing a really nice uh, relationship with Ken and, and the organization, and uh, we have currently about uh, 18 or 19 interns ourselves, and uh, wow. we're hoping to have uh, several visit you next late spring and uh, early summer. Yeah, that would be great. And we would really like to do is be able to have people come down for more than a day or two. You know, if they can come for an extended stay, then we can really plug them in and do some, some great work. When people come for one day, it's really just a tease, but you know, two, three, four days in a row, boy, you, you know, you get to do everything and you'll feel like you've accomplished something. And we want to inspire people. We want, you know, these people that go away thinking that this isn't that hard and we can do something about this and look what how much we got done with this little bit of money that's how you know it's like how far can we stretch it how much more can we get done and how many people can we inspire that's what we're trying to do is inspire people to to get out there and try to make a difference well ken you said to me before this evening that quote i hope i can inspire them to make a difference with their lives and you just touched upon ins inspiration i, I think uh, what you're doing is extremely inspirational and i'm sure uh, our listeners would agree so I thank you so much for, for taking time to uh, teach us more about your work and the uh, Coral Reef Nursery projects. Yeah, and I, I, I tell a lot of kids the same thing that, look, I'm, I'm nobody special. I don't think I'm anybody special. Maybe I, I everybody's special, but um, I just had a wild idea and, and just chased it relentlessly. And look what came out of it. I, you know, I have to pinch myself and I look at how many people are doing this now just because of me. And anybody can do that if they want to and it doesn't have to be and it might not be in coral reefs it might be you know might be something completely different but man chase after your dreams you know don't don't just let people tell you it can't be done i had tons of people tell me it couldn't be done but i had a vision on how it could be done and i was you know not going to be deterred and i still have a i have a bigger vision on a bunch of other things now too that i'm i'm going after <laughs> if I don't if I fail along the way, I'll learn something from it and I'll get back up and keep going. <laughs> so I just encourage everybody, don't give up on yourself. Don't underestimate what one person can do. That's an outstanding message. Thank you, Ken. All right. Great talking to you, Richard. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. If you'd like to see more from Future Frogmen, you can check us out on social media at Future Frogmen or at our website at futurefrogmen.org. We want to say thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thanks.